really interesting. Just uh, Chuck's just kind of his, his body language, right? He's like talking about taking classes, and he's like, yeah, sometimes I take classes and try to learn more about that. And it's kind of, it's almost, forgive me, Chuck, but it was almost like you were like, going, gosh, this is going to be aired. I got to say the right, the right things, you know. And then he starts talking about being in the community and being with people who are living expressions of the tangible hand of Christ. And you kind of saw that transformation from this just kind of like, yeah, that's the, that's what's meant to be said, but this is really what it is and how it really touched his heart. And that's really what I want to talk about today is, is the difference between kind of this idea of, of, oh, discipleship is, you know, telling somebody what to do and making sure they do it, you know, and, and all this kind of stuff to this kind of this idea that, that we are investing in one another's lives and that we are more Christ-like because we are around people who are like Christ. I got to be honest with you, discipleship, uh, when I first became a Christian and, and kind of moving toward being a pastor, discipleship always seemed kind of like boring and just kind of like, oh yeah, you sit in, the, sit in the class and you learn and you, you know, you, you are told these certain rules and, and you obey and then, you know, it's all good. You know, I kind of started, my perception of discipleship was basically this, you know, you told somebody, you tell somebody what to do, then they gel with it, and then if they don't gel with it, you expel them. So you have this kind of this idea of tell, gel, or expel. And, and you know, no wonder most of us, you know, when we think about discipleship in that kind of context, it's like, ugh. But what if we rethought discipleship, kind of how Chuck was talking about, how, how, being made better and, and being compelled into this life as a follower of Christ because you see the transformation that is happening all around you and the real difference it makes. And I think we start seeing that the discipleship in a healthy biblical community looks a heck of a lot more like connexity than sitting in a class learning what you should and shouldn't do. And I, I was really thinking about this, and a few weeks ago, I think, you know, I think God gives us pictures of his truth all around us, and God gave me a picture of truth that during the uh, barbecue uh, cook-off here. You guys go to that? It was awesome. Like, we have some insanely off-the-chain barbecue chefs. I don't even know what you call them. But, but, you know, like Trinity and Carl Green and, and a bunch of other guys are just, you know, just amazing just, you know, meat. And if you're a vegetarian today, like, you're going to have to suffer for Jesus for about 10 minutes here as I, as I kind of go through this. Because I think that we can learn a lot about smoking. We can learn a lot from the smoking process of, of meat and apply that directly to discipleship. 
And uh, so for the past couple of weeks, knowing that I was going to be teaching on this and, and really kind of letting my mind kind of marinate in the idea of smoking. Marinate. Yeah, thank you. <laughs> Very clever. Yeah. Uh, uh, the, that, that, you know, I started reaching out because I'm not a smoker. I mean, I don't smoke or smoke, you know. And that, that, I don't know either one, but I do know people who smoke and smoke, right? And, uh, and hopefully they're not smoking while they're smoking, but that's, you know, it's a topic for another day. But this idea, you know, of, you know, there's people in my community, right, who, who are really good at smoking meat. So I thought I'd reach out to them. Yeah, I got to tell you, people that smoke meat are a weird bunch. <laughs> like, they're all about their secrets and everything. And I, like, I even, like, pulled out my, like, my pastor thing. Well, it's for Jesus, man. And, like, nah, I'll tell you this, but I won't tell you that, and, and all this kind of stuff. And, you know, it blows me away. I hopped on WikiLeaks, WikiLeaks and, and, man, you can find every government secret, but you can't find, a, like, a coherent smoking process. So I had to kind of extrapolate it from different places and come up and really this idea of how do we get a wonderful piece of smoked meat onto our plate. And have you ever thought about like the process and how long it takes? How long do you think it takes to get some smoked meat on your plate? 12 hours, 24 hours, right. This is our first kind of, kind of rethink of discipleship here is rethinking the smoking process. The reality is that living in the modern world, in the microwave world, that, that we don't actually think about how long things actually take. That we are so used to things happening so quick that we jump numerous steps. You see, after a lot of research, I found out, now this is going to be shocking to a bunch of you, but brisket is not born under shrink wrap in the back of Walmart. No, it comes from a cow, a mommy cow. Yeah, do uh, oh, come on, really? I'll never eat beef again. So, mommy cow, and mommy cow has to meet daddy cow, and they'll have a romantic evening, right? If you Google mommy cow and daddy cow having a romantic evening, no. <laughs> That's a much better image for, for our purposes. So after this romantic evening, you know how long it takes for baby cow to pop out? 285 days on average, which is just about nine months. Coincidence? I don't know. But uh, so here we go. We have baby cow, and for our purposes, I've named this baby cow brisket, okay? So you got brisket. So at, at this point, we're, we're about, about 10 months into the process. But, but brisket, you can't, you can't just take brisket at this point. Brisket has to be raised, and it takes about a year or two to raise brisket up into a point where 
we, you know, that goes, gets, goes to slaughter, right? And then, but we're all adults here. We can handle this, right? And then they, they butcher it to a nice piece of brisket, just like that. So once you, you get your, your brisket, you have to uh, trim it even more, uh, about three to five pounds of fat off of it. And then after that, you, you can't just throw it in the oven or something like that. You have to do something called a brine. Now, this is the most guarded secret, you know, around the, 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 the barbecue chefs and smokers. You know, they, they have all the, the secret recipes and everything. And, you know, it's like, yeah, you know, Mark, since you're a pastor and, you know, this is for God, I'll tell you that there's salt in it. All right, well, thanks a lot. You know, I, you know so apparently there's like salt and pepper and... I guess some leaves, and, and some, I don't know if it was just outside and it just fell in there or what, but, but so you got this brine, then you put your brisket in there for like 24 hours, and it just, it starts to marinate in there. Okay, after that, you're, you're going to want to smoke it, right? But remember, we're not going to the store just to go buy some wood chips, that, that, Part of this process, actually, you have to go out and you have to find the right wood, right? You have to find the hickory or the mesquite or, or whatever, and, and you gotta got to chop it up. And then you got to put those chips in water and, and let them get really wet for about 24 hours. And then after you have the, your wet wood, then you can start smoldering it and, and, getting the, and stoking a fire so you have this kind of the smoke coming out. Then you have to make another fire, and you have to have this like a, a raging fire, and you throw your brisket on there for 10 minutes each side. Then you take it off, and then you put it into a roasting pan. Once it's in this roasting pan, you're apparently uh, meant to put half a beer uh, on it, and apparently drink the other half, according to one chef. And... And then uh, uh, put it, oh, and then tent it. Now, I, I put tenting meat, and this is what I got. I have no idea why that makes the brisket good, but I don't know. Part of the secret, I guess. So you tent the meat, um, and then you put it into your smoker. Now, this is where it gets really not into that smoker, that kind of smoker. There we go. Crazy guys. So, and you want to have your smoker with your wood at 225 degrees for 12 hours. Now, you know how hard that would be to, 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 to you know, maintain something that's not too hot and not too cold, that, that's bellowing this smoke so, so the meat can can suck up that, that smoke into and get, and get that flavor. It takes a lot of attention. It takes, you know, you just can't just throw it on there and come back. You would either have raw meat or totally flamed up meat. Then after that, you have to remove it and drain it, and then for about two more hours, put it back into the smoker. After that, remove it from the smoker and let it sit for about half an hour and then cut the brisket on a diagonal, diagonal, and then serve it. 
according to my calculation, this, this process to actually get a, a nice smoked piece of brisket on your plate takes anywhere from two to almost three years. Now, most of us just don't have that patience, right? I mean, that, that takes a lot of patience to actually have a beautiful piece of meat. And, and you know what? We should just, you know, take a shortcut, right? Picked up a, went to Walmart and picked up a piece of meat. I like smoked, so I got myself some liquid smoke here. I mean, who has time for three years, right? Put this in here. Put this in here. And a minute later, hopefully, we'll have this, right? You laugh, but why not? I mean, we, we, don't we a lot of times apply this philosophy right to our discipleship? That, that we're like, you know what, let's throw somebody into the microwave, and as long as they have the smoked taste and it's hot, then we got, we've done our job. The unfortunate thing about microwave is it's nasty, and with microwave, you're either, you know, totally cold or hot, and also meat comes out in a weird gray color. And this is what I want to propose, is this kind of this idea that maybe it's time to rethink the discipleship process. Maybe the smoking process is more what we see in the Bible instead of the microwave process. I uh, was sent a uh, kind of this idea of microwaved uh, discipleship uh, in, in an email. I have no idea if it's real or not, but even though it, that it has some humor, that, that it, it makes a point. And basically they said that there was two churches across from one another and they had a marquee discipleship war. This Catholic church put on their board, all dogs go to heaven. And then the Presbyterian church across the way said, only humans go to heaven. Read the Bible. The next one, God loves all his creation, dog include, dogs included. So they respond, dogs don't have souls. This is not open for debate. So the Catholics respond, Catholic dogs go to heaven. <laughs> Presbyterian dog can talk to their pastor. <laughs> so the Presbyterians say, converting to Catholicism does not magically grant your dog a soul. So the Catholic Church comes back and says, free dog souls with conversion. <laughs> After that, Dogs are animals, there aren't any rocks in heaven, and the Catholics win by, all rocks go to heaven. (laughs) 
It's ugly, it's embarrassing, it's funny. But isn't that kind of the modern idea of discipleship? You know, people, you know, want to come to, you know, or have people come to a Sunday gathering and let the pastor beat the sheep for a while and then kick them out and do it again the following week. I think that there's a much better way. And it's smoking. I mean, you think about smoking and just the process. Smoking, the fire never hits the meat. It's by being in the proximity of the smoke that, it, that, that the meat is transformed into something, you know, just amazing. It even can happen in the negative sense too, right? If, uh, you know, you were, if somebody lit up a cigarette in here right now and, and, and just smoked, um, that we'd all go home and have to burn our clothes or something because we'd all have that, that reek smell in our clothes, wouldn't we? You know, it's kind of ridiculous when there used to be smoking sections in restaurants or even worse on airplanes where there was a smoking section in the back, you know, next to the leper section. And, uh, you know, it's like if you were like sitting in the row before, you know, the smoking section is like, really? You know, smoke doesn't read. And that's the whole point, right? Smoke is a proximity thing. Smoke is something that, that comes out and it changes in it and, it and it clings to everything that is around it. And I think that this is kind of the biblical idea of discipleship. Paul wrote a letter to one of his young pastors, a guy named Titus. He was a pastor on the island of Crete. And he was a young guy. And there was a whole bunch of dissension in the church. Surprise! And, and uh, he was writing to encourage Tim, or, uh, to ti- encouraging Titus to... Uh, to help disciple and, and to, to have this smoking culture of, of just living our lives, you know, close to Christ. And, and by being transformed by Christ, having it permeate everything around us. And I wanted to read a couple of verses in, in chapter 1, and then we're going to jump to chapter 2. In Titus chapter 1 and verse 10, he writes this. He says, For there are many rebellious people who engage in useless talk and deceive others. You see, what was happening was that there's guys there called the Judaizers. And these were people who were Jewish by, by, uh, by birth and they had been raised Jewish, but they had recognized Jesus as the Messiah. But they had kind of taken the 613 laws of Moses and they had laid them over their Christian faith, and they were trying to make all the new believers in Christ, all the Gentiles, follow these 613 laws. And they were being very disruptive and, and, and what does he call them, rebellious against Titus. And so Paul says, look, there are many rebellious people. There are, there, these Judaizers are going to be out there. 
This is especially true for those who insist on circumcision for salvation. You see, even in the first century, there's people who's like, you got to follow the law. Jesus is not enough. And Paul is like, whoa, Titus, don't buckle under this pressure. And this is what Paul said. He said, they must be silenced because they are turning whole families away from the truth by their false teaching. You see, the law doesn't change. Going to a Sunday school class and learning the do's and don'ts does not transform. What transform is what Chuck was talking about as being in the presence of the, of the Christ-like smoke bellowing out of people's lives. That we are transformed by Christ and the Holy Spirit in us. And when we are around others who are living out the life that God has envisioned for them, that we make, we become better. And as we become better, we make others better around us. And he goes and starts off in, in chapter 2, in verse 1, he says, Look, and for you, Titus, promote the kind of living that reflects wholesome teaching. I love this idea. He doesn't say, you know what? I want you to teach and beat the sheep until they fall in the line and they are circumcised and they follow all other, the other 612 laws. He's like, no. You know what, Titus? I want you to live in a way that promotes wholesome living, that promotes who you are in Christ, promotes your freedom in Christ, that you are a new creation in Christ and the smoke that comes out of your life and, and permeates and falls over everybody else will change them. Not because of what you say, but because of what you, who you are in Christ. In verse 2 he says, look, this is what I want you to do. I want you to teach the older men, Titus was a young guy, to exercise self-control, to be worthy of respect and to live wisely. And they must have sound faith and be filled with love and patience. Remember, this is a specific letter to a specific person on the island of Crete, and there's things going on. There's these people who are trying to bring their religious laws into the new freedom in Christ, and what these people are being transformed, and people are trying to put the old yoke of religion on them. And Paul is saying, don't let them do it. You must silence them. And you need to, to teach these men what it truly means to be a follower of Christ. Several weeks ago, we talked about the fruits of the Spirit. And an artist in our community made a, a, a print and put it on the column of the, the fruits of the Spirit. Paul kind of references that here. And he's saying, look, these are kind of the fruits of the Spirit. And this is what needs to be permeating the smoke that needs to be coming out of their lives, self-control, worthy of respect, living a life not of relational wreckage, but a life worthy of respect, to live wisely, to have sound faith, not sound doctrine, not sound theology, but sound faith in Jesus Christ. Love. 1 Corinthians 13, above all things, love. 
you do not have love, you are just a clanging symbol. And then ultimately, patience. And this is what's meant to be taught, Timothy. These are the, this is the smoke that I want to come out of your life. And, and these are the, 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 the characteristics of a godly man. That, that as they do life and they go to work and they, they teach others and, and they interact with their family, that, that you know what, the, the smoke that they pour onto other people's lives or self-control, a life worthy of respect, that they'll live wisely, that they'll have sound faith, that they will be known for their love and their patience. And then he goes on, he says, look, similarly, teach the older women to live in a way that honors God. They must not slander one another or be heavy drinkers. Instead, they should teach others what is good. These older women must train the other women to love their husbands and their children, to live wisely and be pure, to work in their homes, to do good, and to be submissive to their husbands. Then they will not bring shame on the word of God. In the same way, encourage the young men to live wisely. I think a lot of people, a lot of times, forget that last sentence. You see, Paul's writing to Titus, and he's not saying women act this way, men act that way, you do this, you do that. He's trying to paint a picture of what a healthy biblical community looks like. A community that, that is bellowing certain sorts of characteristics and, and people by being immersed and marinated in, and, and being the presence of that, of that beautiful smoke will start taking on the characteristics. He's saying, look, you know what? Gossip has no place in this community until the women and the men do not gossip. Also, don't be heavy drinkers. These are the two don'ts that he gives. Don't gossip and don't be a heavy drinker. Now, that doesn't mean, you know, account for the calories in your beer and make sure that, you know, you're an ideal weight. No, that's not what he's talking about, right? He's talking about, you know what? Don't give yourself over to something that is going to impair your judgment. I have a friend in Canada whose wife uh, uh, liked to drink, and he would, in the most loving way, tell her not to be a liquor pig. And this is kind of what Paul is saying. He's like, don't be a liquor pig, right? Also, I love this part in, in verse 4. These older women must train the younger women to love their husbands and their children. This idea of training, it... it it, it's a very poignant kind of idea in word. In one of my triathlete magazines, there's an uh, ad for, for a coach, uh, a triathlon coach, and, and his thing is stop working out and start training. You see, there's a difference. You can go out and swim, bike, run all the time, but that's not training. That's just going out and working out. And what he's trying to say and to illustrate this point is when you are working out, it, you have to be intentional. And intentionally doing this now makes it training. Training for what? Training for a specific purpose. And this is what Paul's telling Titus. He's like, look, 
tell the older women that they need to train up the younger women. I personally think that mentorship and, and the violation of this, uh, this kind of principle is one of the biggest victories Satan has had on the American church. The, the, the segmentation of generations, it is a tragedy. Every fall I get calls from college students, freshmen, and, and they're like, hey, you know what? What do you have to offer college students? And what they're looking for is a college ministry that has pizza and, and a college pastor and, and all this. Most, most, most freshmen. Because their youth pastor says, when you get to Tallahassee, call around and find a college program to get involved in. And they call, and I, and I say, you know what we have? We have a church that you can come and be part of, that you can be in growth groups with people who are, you know, four times older than you, literally. You can, you can serve, and you can be, uh, and, 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 and be in significant service and leadership, and we understand that, you know, you're going to be gone during the summer, and, and, but when you come back, this can be your home. And when you graduate, you will be able to, wherever you end up, be able to walk into a local community and bless them. I'd like to say that I usually hear on the other side of the phone, can I come now? But usually it's click or thanks. Click. Because people naturally like to be with people who are just like but there's only one problem with always being with people who are just like you. You will always be just like you. And one of the most beautiful things about the church is just the, the, the demographic of, of older people and younger people doing life together, rich people and poor people doing life together. Every race coming together and learning from one another. This kind of mash-up, smoke-filled room of, of different followers of Christ living out this expression of, of, of what Christ has done in their life and it permeating around and everyone being better because of it. And when we segment out college students over there, old people over there, relatively young people here, you know, middle of the ground. I don't know. Uh, I guess I'm middle-aged now. I don't like that. But this idea, you know, divorce people over there. Oh, here's a great one. Singles ministry. Is there ever been a worse ministry? The whole point of the ministry is not to be in that ministry anymore. Right? It's ridiculous. And you know, if you get hooked up on eHarmony or, or something, you get kicked out of your community and you're thrown into the young marrieds or whatever. It's not healthy. It's not biblical. It's microwave discipleship. You see, these women must train the younger women. And they need to make their home a priority. Remember, Paul's specifically talking to women because of the culture he's speaking in in the time. But you know what? That's a priority for all of us 
to do good and to be submissive to their husband. But remember, you know, in the context of Scripture that men are meant to, you know, give their life for their wives, that there's this idea of a partnership. And what Paul is really talking about here is there's a, there's a, there's a cultural theme of what it means to be a follower of Christ, the type of smoke that bellows out of your life and that, per, that permeates into everyone around you. And that's a place where God is number one, is on, your, on the throne. And your family, and you take care of your family. Men take care of their, their family. Women take care of their family. That we come together as a community and speak truth and encourage one another. Not Christian con- encouragement, real encouragement. To help somebody live the life that Christ has envisioned for them. You know what? A lot of churches don't like that because it's not quick. It takes a long time. And we're at a point where our culture is dictating how the church has been mandated from God to exist. And that's got to stop. In verse 7, and then he turns, his, turns to Titus and he says, And yourself must be an example to them by doing good works of every kind. Let, you do, let everything you do reflect the integ- uh, integrity and seriousness of your teaching. Here we go again. How you live, the smoke that is bellowing out of your life needs to Support your teaching. Not tell people to do as you say, not as you do, but as Paul talks about in another epistle, if you've seen anything in me, if you've seen me do anything, if you've seen my actions, put these things into practice. But none of us want that mantle. I don't want it. You don't want it. We would much rather have people do what you say and not what you do, right? You ever had a parent tell you that? It's not how it works. It's microwave discipleship. And it's an American invention, not the microwave, but the, the, the quick discipleship. And it just doesn't work. And you end up with a nasty piece of meat. Verse 8, teach the truth so that your teaching can't be criticized. Then those who oppose us will be ashamed and have nothing bad left to say. Now remember what he's talking about here in the context of the scripture. Titus is coming under all sorts of criticism, right? The Judaizers are beating him up. He's probably about to give up. And Paul is like, don't give up. You need to stand up and tell them that they have useless talk. You, and he goes on later to say, you have the authority to shut these people down because, you know what, Christ did not come to give the 614th law of Moses. He came so you and I and his creation can have a transformed life and relationship with the one true living God. In verse 9, Continues on, he says, look, slaves must always obey their masters. Now, slaves, I know, 
I read that, I shut down. You hear that, you shut down. Again, first century context. In our context, people who have authority over us. All of us have authority over us. And this is what Paul's talking about here, is he wants us to disciple up. He's just talked about discipling down, discipling to those that you have authority over. Now, he's talking about discipling up. And this is what he says. He says, look, those of you who have authority over you, slaves, must always obey their masters and do their best to please them. They must not talk back or steal, but they must show themselves to be entirely trustworthy and good. Then they will make teaching about God our Savior attractive in every way. You know that that's a theme in Scripture. Again and again, we hear that word, making Christ's teaching and making Christ attractive. In Colossians 4, 5, and 6, like Live wisely among those who are not believers and make the most out of every opportunity. Let your conversations be gracious and attractive so that you will have the right response from everyone. You know, we have this idea that, you know what, I told the truth, and if the truth made them bludgeon and die, then oh well, God help them. It's not what we see in the Bible. Yes, we see speaking the truth, but we see speaking the truth in a gracious, humble way with having a relational right. We do not have the right to shove someone in the microwave and and put them on popcorn and walk away and come back later. No, we earn the relational right by, by the whole smoking process, which takes time and it takes commitment. Verse 11, for the grace of God has been revealed, bringing salvation to all people. And we have instructed, and we are instructed to turn from godless living and sinful pleasures. We should live in this evil world with wisdom, righteousness, and devotion to God. There we go again, some more fruits of the Spirit. How we're meant to live. While we look forward with hope to the wonderful day when the glory of our great Savior, Jesus Christ, will be revealed. And then finally, he talks about the right. The right to speak into lives and how to do that. In verse 14, he says, look, he gave us, he gave his life to free us from every type of sin, to cleanse us, to make us his very own people. He adopted us into his family, totally committed to doing good deeds. You must teach these things and encourage the believers to do them. You have the authority to correct them when necessary. Don't let anyone disregard what you say. Paul's talking to Titus and saying, look, these guys who say they know the religious law, these guys who are trying to put this heavy burden and yoke on everyone, you need to shut them down. You have the authority to do that, and you must do that by your position. Because you have to viciously protect a culture that people are transformed not by compulsion or angry words, but are transformed by Jesus Christ and transformed by being in a community of people who are following hard after Christ and following as closely in his footsteps as they can, so close that they are covered with dust. 
And it's your job, Titus, to protect that community from those who wish to destroy it. We are not a microwave community. We are a smoking community. And it takes time. And there's lots of ups and downs and there's flame ups and there's mistakes. But ultimately, I much rather have, wait three years to have a real follower of Christ who's been transformed by Christ and community than a 45-second nuked with liquid smoke Christian that is gray and really worthless for anything. Will you guys pray with me? Dear God, pray that we are a smoked community, a community that bellows smoke and that our smoke encourages others, that our smoke transforms people into your likeness, that we don't shove people into the microwave, but we make a long-term commitment to them, a commitment for the flare-ups and the cool-downs, a commitment, a commitment to, to walk with them and pray with them. God, I pray against the spirit of quick fixes and, and tell, gel, or expel mentality. God, let this be a smoking community of your love, gracious passion for us. We love you, Lord. In Jesus' name, amen.